Good morning. Um, so over the past year, City Church has been going through um, a season of seeking the Lord. Before that, we were pretty invested in uh, an after-school program for high school students, uh, but the church's leadership felt that we needed to go in a different direction uh, without knowing what that direction looked like or what that was. So many of the message series this year uh, that we've been working through uh, have been focused on having our own house in order and seeking the Lord for direction while remaining faithful to his word. So it's been about a year uh, that we've been waiting on the Lord to see how he would have, have us move. Uh, we're well into the holiday season at this point. Um, Thanksgiving is just a memory. Um, we're done being thankful and we've largely moved on to getting ready for Christmas. Uh, just hustle and bustle, uh, shopping, decorating, and other preparations that go with the season. Um, but it seems like this preparation, this season, starts earlier and every earlier and earlier every year. Um, I was in Texas in mid-August, and I walked into a store with with my friend that I was with, and it had a huge Christmas decoration display. And uh, I just want to smash it to pieces. I just. I have a strong disdain for the commercialism that uh, seems to be creeping ever deeper into uh, this season. Uh, it's not very often discussed here in the States, uh, except you know maybe various interpretations of a countdown calendar uh, to Christmas, uh, or perhaps in more traditional churches. But in many other parts of the world, this is a season that we know as Advent. Many of the liturgical uh, practices of the European churches were abandoned by the Puritans as they came over to, to the U.S. and North America uh, due to the pagan influences. Um, they were more about, they felt that they were more about rituals than um, the season itself and, and the intent of the celebration. See any parallels? Um, so Advent has very little to do with what our current cultural interpretation of the Christmas season is, which is you know, slowly morphing into the gift, ex- gift exchange in ugly sweaters and being surrounded by a bunch of glittery things. Uh, many of the Christmas-themed Christmas songs uh, we find nostalgic and warm and fuzzy don't actually have anything to do with the birth of Christ. Um, they have a great message, but they don't, they don't have anything to do with Christ or, the birth, or his birth. Um, the secular culture is continuing to whitewash and dilute Christianity, uh, and it's, it's just a type of subversion um, that we're, we're dealing with. So the Advent season officially starts on November 30th, which is the day of the Feast of St. Andrew, uh, is when it's traditionally celebrated. The word Advent itself uh, is of Latin origin, and it means coming, to describe the eventual arrival of the Messiah in this case. While Advent itself uh, is not specifically outlined in the Bible, it was established in the early church to connect the threads of the past, present, and future as they relate to Christ's first and second coming. Now, there were some differences in these practices uh, and the duration of the season 
between the Eastern European Orthodox churches and the Western, more you know, Roman-influenced uh, churches. Some scholars believe that, early, that the early Advent season was a season of preparation and fasting before new Christians would be baptized in January. And by the arrival of the 5th century, Pope St. Gregory uh, laid the groundwork shaping Advent as this liturgical season was very significant, and it would last about five to six weeks. So in parallel, uh, there's also a lot of focus on a man named Nicholas, whom we know today as St. Nicholas. He was a 4th century bishop in a city called Myra, located in modern-day Tur- modern Turkey. He was known for his extreme generosity um, from the wealth that he inherited from his parents, and he practiced his, practiced his generosity by dropping gold coins into the shoes of the needy when they weren't looking. Now, he didn't walk around and follow needy people and, and you know, slip coins into, into their shoes. Uh, it's pretty foreign to us because we just walk in and out of everywhere with the same shoes on, but uh, in much of the rest of the world, it's considered very offensive for you to walk into someone's house with, with your shoes on. So you would take them off at the step, and then you would enter. Um, and then you'd either be barefoot, or the, the host would provide you house shoes that you would walk around in. So St. Nicholas would walk around and drop these gold coins into the shoes while, as they were out. Uh, and he's also known for dropping satchels of coins down the chimney of a father with three daughters as a diary so that they could get married because he was extremely poor. He was, he was in, in debt and just had no way out. And so St. Nicholas Day uh, is celebrated uh, and is dedicated to his memory on December 6th, which is the day that he died. The Dutch-speaking parts of Europe carried on the tradition of remembering him by having their kids leave their shoes by the door uh, out overnight. So this is how kids found out uh, whether they had behaved well enough for St. Nick to leave them a present. And this is a, a lot of, this is also where a lot of our modern tradition uh, comes from surrounding St. Nick and Santa Claus. As, as the Dutch migrated over from Europe, they brought it with, him, with them. Um, there's also, you'll, this time of year, you'll, you'll see the, the gold coins. They're, you know, it's foil-wrapped chocolate, but it's also to signify and help, uh, help us to connect with that part of, of the past and remember St. Nick. So those coins came into uh, into being into popularity. They, be, they became popular around the 16th century. So as kids, I remember, you know, at night we'd you know we would um, celebrate Advent regularly, and, and part of that uh, celebration as kids was that we would leave our shoes out. Now, you know, our parents couldn't give us gold coins because we were dirt poor, but. Um, we would find, you know, some chocolates. We would find uh, walnuts that were still in the hall, but spray-painted gold, some oranges, uh, some odds and ends. Uh, and that's how we would celebrate part of the anticipation of uh, Christ's coming. So the Advent wreath that you see out here uh, originated in Germany also around the 16th century. Uh, the four candles uh, represent each of one week of, of Advent. 
And then the middle candle is known as the Christ candle, and that's lit on Christmas. The candles represent hope, peace, joy, and love. And then the anticipation of Christ's birth. So this is what we want to focus on over the next four weeks. Uh, The hope, the peace, the joy, and the love that comes with this season. These are the themes that we should be thinking and talking about when someone says something about the magic of the season or the Christmas spirit. Being nice, kind, generous, and all these other gestures are all fine and wonderful. But are they, do they have much meaning without Christ? So today's theme is hope. But what is hope? Is it hoping for better, better weather? Raise or a promotion? Hoping for lots of presents under the tree? Generally, what we define hope as um, is a wish for a positive outcome or at least the avoidance of a negative one. Now, none of these things are bad or wrong to desire, um, but none of these hopes come with a promise or an expectation. More often than not, they're just mere wishes or wishful thinking. Biblical hope is not biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. Um, reading from uh, Isaiah 9, uh, verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For, in verse 6, a child is born to us, a son given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So for thousands of years before the birth of Christ, wandering through the desert, through persecution and captivity, the Israelites had no choice but to lean into this hope in God, hope in the Messiah that was to come, this assurance or confidence that their hope in God would deliver them. How difficult that must have been. The only thing that the Israelites had to cling to especially during those 430 years of silence that that Brian talked about earlier, is this hopeful assurance of God's faithfulness.
Hebrews six thirteen to 20. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms that confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And in Luke 3.15, we can see that they did indeed remain hopeful. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. Also read 16. John, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Four hundred and thirty years, entire generations were born and died off with no communication from God. What if God didn't give City Church any direction for another 429 years? Is our hope anchored in God's promises enough that the great, 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 great grandchildren of ours are still walking with God and trusting in his promises? There's a very good chance that, this, that, the, that city church, the entity itself, will not be around. But that's not the point. How are we as, as a people of God resting in this hope of Christ and how are we passing that on to, our, to the future generations? The New Testament consistently points back to the promises that God made to the Israelites in the Old Testament. He repeatedly reminded his people of his promises, and therefore the people could trust those promises because they could expect them to be fulfilled. But even still... They would falter time and time again. God had to continually remind his people about those promises. And that's the other side of hope. It's hopelessness. It's despair. It's doubt. Even in relatively recent history, we have examples of, of similarly hopeless situations that the Old Testament Israelites lived through. Armenian Christians have endured centuries-long persecution and outright, outright genocide. Similar, thing, 
similar things can be said of Christians in Assyria, in Greece, the early Romans, Palestinians, many others. Just this past Saturday was Holodomor Remembrance Day. The Holodomor took place in the Ukraine in the early 1930s. Historically, that part of Europe had uh, always been Orthodox Christian, and largely still is. And as the, the Bolsheviks and the communists rose to power, it created tension between, between the Christians and them. Farms and any crops uh, and livestock were seized. During the winter of 1932 and 1933, it's estimated that somewhere between 7 and 15 million people were starved to death. There's many other examples of such atrocities, and they seem foreign to us because we haven't experienced them here in North America. I'd like to think that I could remain hopeful through a scenario like that, but it'd be pretty difficult, especially without Jesus. My grandmother, who had lived an incredibly difficult life, was a tremendous example to me of what it means to put hope into Jesus. Hopelessness is all that she was surrounded by um, her, you know, for most of her life. And every year, she was very eager to set up her own little Advent wreath and, and light the candle as she studied the prophecies that foretold the arrival of the Messiah. It was rare to have a conversation with her that didn't touch on the hope that Jesus brings at any time of the year, but especially during Advent. And despite many of the difficulties that she faced in her life, she was always anchored in that hope. She had hope because she knew Jesus intimately. Her favorite Bible verse, and, and also one of mine, is Job 19.25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and, then, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And yet there are many, still many times that things feel hopeless and often Jesus would just come back already. But we're not there yet. You or someone you might know could be dealing with a situation that seems just completely hopeless. It doesn't have to involve famine or, or any major atrocity, but um, if that's the worst thing that they've ever dealt with, that's their definition of hopelessness. Now, if you've been walking with Christ for... Um, a little while, it may be easier to recognize these patterns that have been established in your life as you look back and reflect. Much like the Israelites that were continually reminded of God's faithfulness, God does the same thing through these events that he shows up in your life. We all have a cross to bear, and it, it looks different to each of us, but that reflection is a very important aspect of our relationship with Jesus. We need to be able to look back on those moments where he showed up, those anchor points, recognizing and acknowledging them when things feel hopeless. These scenarios are there for the Holy Spirit to remind us of God's faithfulness. And sometimes it takes a friend or someone discipling us to serve as that reminder. In Romans 8, 12, 12, 
we see it written. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. There are so many people who put their hope into anything and everything but Jesus. Just look around. Truly don't know how a non-believer, someone who's not in Christ, makes it day after day. In Job 8, verse 13 through 28. There's no verse 28. There's 22, sorry. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What he trusts in is fragile. What he relies on is a spider's web. He leans on his web, but it gives way. He clings to it, but it does not hold. He is like a well-watered plant in the sunshine, spreading its shoots over the garden. It entwines its roots around a pile of rocks and looks for a place among the stones. But when it is torn from its spot, the place disowns it and says, I never saw you. Surely its life withers away, and from the soil other plants grow. Surely good does not. Surely God does not reject a blameless man or strengthen the hands of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies enemies will be clothed, clothed in shame and the tents of the wicked will be no more. The world is in desperate need of the hope that Jesus brings. You might be new in your faith. Or maybe you don't have a whole lot of life experience yet. Maybe you came to Christ later in life, perhaps through a situation that seemed hopeless, but found the hope that only Jesus can provide. I was reading a devotional earlier this week, and it brought up something I had never thought of or considered. The book of Luke talks about an angel appearing in the Garden of Gethsemane, to strengthen Jesus, to remind him of the reason that he came to earth. The intensity of Jesus' prayer and the stress that went along with it caused him to sweat blood. And the author of the devotional goes on to say, perhaps many of those living in the first century wouldn't be saved, but the angel may have reminded, reminded Jesus of the millions of people before and after the cross that he would be giving his life for. What if the angel reminded Jesus of your name while he was in the garden? Does that picture give you hope? I can't not put my hope in Jesus knowing that he came to earth for me. And for you. And he's going to come back again. So as you go about and live your life this week, I encourage you to talk, to talk about the hope that you have in Jesus. Dinner, the water cooler at work, cashier as you're doing your shopping. Be bold, be courageous. Share this hope that you have in Jesus. Talk about what he did the first time that he came. And talk about what he'll do the next time that he comes.
Let this hope be the driver of the ma- this magic of Christmas and the Christmas spirit. Jesus, thanks for being our hope. Thanks for being our deliverer. Thanks for giving us a season that we get to rest and reflect on this promise you made to come back. Help us not get caught up in the world and what the world is telling us to do. But to live with purpose. And to rest in your hope. Amen.